Nurses and Hypochondriacs, the podcast that brings nurse experts, patients, and hypochondriacs together to discuss hot topics in healthcare. And here is your host, Ercilia Pompilio. If more and more people are being diagnosed with obesity, then why are there so few options for fat funerals? On this episode of Nurses and Hypochondriacs, my very special guest, Isabella Carr, will be talking about death fat and fat funerals. This is a very interesting discussion that you won't want to miss. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Rogue Nurse Media 501c3 and the well-written nurse, empowering nurses and patients to tell their stories. Welcome to Nurses in Hypochondriacs, Isabella Carr. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. And like I, we were talking right before we started recording, I found you on Instagram and I, I just got so drawn in to your Instagram post. So tell us about yourself and about this very, very interesting journey that you're on right now and how you got there. Well, thank you so much for saying that. I am um, really, really grateful that what I'm kind of researching and envisioning resonates with people. Um, I thought it would, but there was so little um, research in the field on this topic that I was kind of worried it just wasn't of interest. But um, so I am a theologian, a death worker, and a graduate student at Harvard Divinity School. Um, and when I applied to, to HDS, I applied basically to say, hey, I, I have this death work practice. I'm thinking through end of life care, but I'm seeing this huge gap in specialized services for fat people, um, which as someone who is fat, I have been told my whole life that I'm imminently on the edge of death um, and that at any second, I'm just going to like keel over from a heart attack. Um, and so I really... I thought there would be a lot more. I thought there would be a lot of people kind of like lining up to provide this, this service to cash in on um, just, you know, this huge amount of fat people dying left and right. Um, you know, the kind of cosmic joke of it all is that everyone is going to die at some point. Right. Uh, but so as I was kind of going through this and, and dealing with like um, fat liberation literature and activism and healthcare and all these kind of intersections, um, I, I ended up at death fat, which um, is kind of a jarring term for people who aren't part of the fat community, uh, because it it's it really plays on this idea of morbid obesity um, and the idea that your body uh, could be your body could be terminal just because of the way that it looks or how it carries tissue um and that like the way that you are is going to kill you and that that becomes an identity for people so right. uh, yeah so i i was kind of playing with that and there's um there's a, a great like blogger who was very popular um named leslie kinzel who kind of uh, coined the term death fat but she coined it as a joke um basically to say like oh how funny like they all are calling us like morbidly obese like why don't we just call ourselves death fat? Cause that's what they mean. That's what morbidly obese means. And it was meant to be funny. It was meant to be flip. And it was meant to just kind of be this, this jab at 
the language we use to talk about fat people and how pathologizing that language is. Um, but then I was thinking, if I'm looking at these intersections of death and fat, and we have a word, we have a category of fatness, which is like super fat at the very end of the spectrum from like small fat, mid fat, large fat to infinite fat is one way you might hear it or to death fat. Then like, why not take that joke to its punchline and say, okay, fine. You think we're going to die. Maybe we are dying. How do I, as a death worker, provide better care that specializes in fat people? And how do I theologically start to work through what it means to live in a fat body, what it means to grapple with your death because you're in this body, regardless of whether or not that body is healthy. Um, and I use the term healthy kind of in scare quotes. Um, so yeah, and that's how I arrived at death fat. And that's kind of where I've um, been focusing my research. And when I requested to work with Jill Shock of Death Duel LA this summer, it was to, um, to say, hey, I want to put this into practice. How do I do that? And I need someone who's had a lot of experience to help me, to help me flush it out. I love that. Yeah. And, and it's very true. Not very much research out there. When I was looking it up, when I was looking death fat in particular up, when I did a Google search, what came up was a book, like it's a diet book. And I was yeah. like, what's this? You know, and um, I was trying to get to more stuff, but that book kept coming up over and over again. I was like, this is annoying, you know, and why would anybody call their diet book death fat? It's not going to make me, it doesn't make me want to read it. I mean, yeah. if, if there was a book called death fat, talking about death, I would write, I would read that book, but not the the diet book. You know, it doesn't make me want to read it. Does it make me want to go through it? It's not very inspiring to me. Whoever thought of that term for a diet book, totally terrible. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. I mean, people... But if you wrote a book on death called death fat, I would totally pick it up. Just like how, you know, I saw your, um, Instagram posts for the death doula uh, section too. I was like, oh my gosh, because I follow them. And then I started following you. I was like, I, I need to know more of this. This is so fascinating. And there's, like you said, not very much out there. And they keep saying there's this obesity crisis and stuff. And you would think there would be more information or more services for fat people, you know, or obese people, as we call them in healthcare, you know, but there's not. So this is an, a very interesting niche. And like I said, I see really good things for you coming out of this. But tell us about death work, first of all, which I think is so interesting, and not a topic that very many people know about or learn about. Now, I've had the um, a nurse on the podcast speaking about death, mm -hmm. you know, and she's um, all over tw uh, TikTok and stuff. Um, but go ahead and tell us about death work and how that works and how you got into death work. And it, because it is a very interesting field. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so death work is, uh, and we use the term death work kind of as a broad umbrella term for anyone who is working with death, right? So that's could be more traditional when you think of like a hospice nurse or you think of um, a funeral home director or a mortician or things like that, where you might kind of automatically associate them with death work. But um, recently there's been a kind of resurgence in popularity of what is a, um, you know, 
centuries old practice of caring and tending for the dead uh, and, and this kind of midwife and doula role. And so people are really familiar. Most people are familiar with um, birth doulas. That's probably when they, when they hear the word doula, that's what they associate it with. Death doulas are very similar and like birth doulas are part of this like long history of mostly women tending to these kind of like life cycles, tending to birth and death. Um, and doulas now um, are can do a variety of things, right? So some doulas are, they specialize in preparation leading up to death. They may do spiritual care. They may do um, help with paperwork. They may kind of help anyone who's coming to the end of their life process that in emotional terms, religious terms, if they are, you know, they themselves are spiritual or religious. Um, or some some doulas specialize in actually right at death, right? So they will help maybe in California, they do like medical assisted suicide, or sorry, not medical assisted suicide, um, medical assisted aid, medically assisted aid in dying, which some people also term medically assisted suicide. Um, that can also be supporting uh, someone at the end of their life who is going to do voluntary stopping of eating and drinking. So they can kind of help people as they are immediately and imminently approaching the end of their life. Um, and again, that can look like emotional support that can look like legacy projects. A lot of people who maybe are diagnosed with a terminal disease and have time, um, maybe they have children or loved ones that they want to do legacy projects for doulas can help with that in a way that um, maybe a traditional funeral home or funeral home director is not equipped to help with a legacy project. Um, well, what's a, hold on. Uh, what's a legacy project? Like, let's go into that a little bit. Is it like a person's story or? So legacy projects, and this is something I love about death work in general, um, is that there's so much flexibility and death is one of those fields, those industries, those moments that people don't think a lot about and they don't they don't get very creative or imaginative with it. People think right. that you die and you're buried or you're cremated. And that's it. And that's it. Goodbye. And there's just so much more. <laughs> yeah, right. There's so much more possible. And if you're lucky, you know, your family continues to go to the grave and see you or they keep your urn like, you know, up on the mantle. But for a lot of people, like that's kind of it. So legacy projects give people an opportunity to say, how do I want to be remembered? Um and for some people, that's like their name on a building or, uh, you know, that's a um, that's they write letters. They write, you know, letters to each of their children or loved ones. There's uh, some great resources like the Conversation Project and the Death Deck and lots of different um, products and, and services that can help people think about what they want. Um, so like one legacy project and, and a girlfriend of mine whose mother passed recently, um, her mom's on her on her mother's birthday she had um planned before her death that uh, all the children receive a handwritten note and receive a beautiful bouquet of flowers so she said okay this is going to be a really hard day for my kids that I'm gone so how can I make them feel better how can I make them feel that I'm still with them how can I celebrate right. with them so legacy projects can look so different right they could be that you record you know voicemails or voice notes or video recordings if you're you know, if you pass before your children get married, maybe you want to have a video that says, congratulations on your wedding day. I wish oh, I wow. could be there. I love you so much. Like there is, 
and for other people that looks like they want to build a library in a small town. Like it, it can be whatever people want to be remembered by. Um, and it just, death work is, is at its core about returning a little bit of, a little bit of power and agency to people who are dying, who feel like, oh my God, this is just happening to me. And I have no say and no control in what this looks like. And while obviously we can't stop death, um, we can make it a better experience for them. That's so true. One of the things that I've been interested in and I've been toying around uh, in my head with, like on a project level, is the roadside memorials, mm. which I feel are so interesting that people will erect. Um, my friend the other day was telling me on one of the, I live in the desert. So one of the streets here in the desert, he's like, oh my gosh, there's so many out here of those. Like he was driving to work and, and he's like, oh, look at all these roadside memorials. I was like, what's going on there? You know, um, I had an experience with the roadside memorial uh, in Joshua Tree where it was at a gas station and it was of these two children. I didn't know they were, uh, it was a brother and a sister. And so they had erected this memorial and it, it probably was there about two years after they had passed. And, and I just kind of zoned in and I was like, who are these two people? And I thought that, you know, because Joshua tree, a lot of millennials will go there to, to camp. And I was like, oh, are these like two, uh, people who are dating or maybe like young love, you know, here I go into the romantic sphere of who these two were. Um, little did I know I'm very intuitive uh, and psychic. And, um, and sometimes I am used as a channel that this whole story started to unfold uh, months later when I had um, contacted one of their uh, deceased or not deceased their one of their teachers. Um, and that just happened to be by chance and it was off a of bumble. And I've spoken about this story on um, my episode, The Psychic Surgeon, where the story started to unravel and it somehow had a connection with the clinic that I work at in Palm Springs, <laughs> which was very bizarre. Oh, and that's I happened, wild. Yeah, I happened. I'll tell you the story off because I kind of don't want to take it is a very long winded story. Um, but I'll tell you personally after we're done, cause I've already shared it on another episode, but yeah, it, it kind of took me to very, a lot of synchronistic places, but then it, it came, I, I started to get this idea with who are these roadside people that their lives have just ended so abruptly, you know, and, in the stories, what's the story behind it is always my, uh, inquiry, you know, and, and my curiosity and that's where it goes, but yeah, it's very, very fascinating. I'm sure you have tons of stories like that going into this work. Like you seem very intuitive as well. So thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, um, I have, a, I have multiple psychics who I kind of can, or, or mediums or different kind of intuitive that I consult with very, very, wow, uh, I love it. Kind of uh -huh. California of me. Yeah. Um, but I, uh, and I've been told that I'm intuitive. I have to say, I haven't quite been able to tap into it the way I would like to, but I definitely feel that I'm visited by spirits and I definitely feel, and, and part of what allows me to do this work personally, and this is not, this is not true of all death workers, but that I do have, um, kind of a, I do have a spirituality, a, a spiritual practice. I do have yeah. uh, kind of theological beliefs and I have 
um, an idea about what happens after death. And that allows me to feel connected to people that I lose. Um, and especially, you know, I, I definitely think that, that spirits stay with us, that people can contact their loved ones and that, um, it isn't just some like kind of black hole on the other side. I believe that there's something. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've studied it quite a bit because I've had several experiences. Um, in, in, I think part of understanding the, your intuition is, is trust, you know, and ready, really getting into your heart space, getting out of your ego and just sitting in your heart space and going, mm-hmm. okay, what am I hearing? What am I listening? What's the message? You know, um, and with me, a lot of times, you know, like I didn't trust it until I started to trust mm-hmm. and seeing where it led me. And it, it's been fascinating. You know, it's like, it's, I see it very like a fun thing, you know, as almost a game, like someone's kind of playing a game with me, but in a safe way, because it could get kind of crazy. <laughs> so, you know, cause sometimes I'll have to contact certain people that may not want to be contacted and they don't want to hear, they don't want to hear the story. You know, they, they, you know, this person or or this soul or spirit that has gone off to the other side, they're trying to make contact kind of like poltergeist sometimes. And the other person doesn't want to hear it, you know, or they're not open to it or they're just done or whatever. But like I said, I'll share that story with you after. So it's always fascinating, you know, delving into this world and what comes out of it. But yeah. So let's talk more about death fat. Cause like I said, I was doing research into uh, fat funerals and there's not much out there, you know, no. and, it, and it is really fascinating. And then I went to a comedy show last Saturday and my friend was performing and I, you know, happened to talk about the podcast. I told her I was going to have you on and, and she's like, oh, that's really interesting. And she told me, she goes, I remember when I went to Chris Farley's funeral, you know, and I think he died in like the early 2000s or something like that. And she said uh, she had worked on his show. I guess he was on tour when he just died of an overdose. And she said it was just so painful to watch the pallbearers. You know, she just felt really felt for them because they were carrying his casket and it was rather large, you know, but they carried it. And I found out that the guys who it, the guys who carried the casket were not his uh, Saturday Night Live co-actors um, or co-comedians, whatever you want to call them, but they were his childhood friends. Okay. You know, it's like three or four of them who were carrying that casket and they really, you know, cause I was like, this is like a, a kind of interesting connection. Cause she's telling me how they were struggling but yet they were his childhood friends. You know, yeah. it's like they had this devotion to their friend from childhood. I think that's that's rather interesting. So, oh, I think that's beautiful. I also yeah. think they could have added more pallbearers. Like, I think that there's um, a way that they could have done that for him, right? They could have yeah, Probably, made it easier yeah. for everybody by adding a few more people or putting it on. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I I think it's, I mean, I I, I would hope that if, um, and I don't, I, I don't want to be in a traditional casket or go through a funeral. Yeah, I mean, either, so, uh, uh-uh. we'll yeah, talk about that. I, yeah. Yeah. But I, I hope that, you know, if I were, and my friends were, you know, a lot of, actually a lot of my friends are very petite. So I don't know that they would do that great carrying anyone's casket, nonetheless mine. 
but I would hope that, you know, I'd hope that there'd be some kind of solution, right? Put me on wheels. Um, yeah. You know, which people have done, right? You can roll a casket in and you can have people just holding it and steering it. Like there are solutions for that. But um, I think that's the kind of thing. And you mentioned, um, and I, I got a little sidetracked earlier because you're talking about spirits and there's someone. There's <laughs> I know, really, see, the spirits were bringing you. You're like, yeah, there's a really great story happens. about, about. That's what um, happens. I'm telling I'm you plug her really quickly because it's so interesting if people are listening to this and, and are interested in this. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is like oh, a, yes. like known as the Elizabeth. queen of death. Yes. yes. And she got so many visits and so many spirits. So she's really, really cool if people are interested in death work at all and how it intersects with healthcare because she she was pre- predominantly in hospital settings. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, very cool. Check yeah, we learned about her at nursing school. I remember way back in the day, you know, I think in my bachelor's program, uh, I learned about her and I loved her. I have to yeah. deep dive into her again. I've used her a little bit. I wrote an article that didn't get published, which I'm, you know, which maybe was a good thing because um, what happened with between my editor and I has now catapulted me into doing my own magazine because I was okay. just like, I'm over this, you know, so sometimes things like that are a good thing. Yeah. But I, I did delve into a little bit of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross because I was writing about hospice nurses and going way back into hospice and I found something ugly. So the woman, and I forget her name, is this British woman who um, came up with, maybe you know her name, um, with hospice, like she invented hospice in England. I forget her name, but, um, you know, the thing about her is, uh, they never included children, which I thought was very interesting into hospice care until many years later, probably like, I I'm like, don't quote me on this, uh, maybe in the nineties or so. And one of the reasons why this woman who is known as the, the grandmother of hospice or whatever is because she never liked children. She didn't like her childhood. She never liked children. So therefore, she never incorporated children in hospice care or in death care. Isn't that like weird? And you're talking about um, Cicely Saunders. Yes, that's it. Yes. And then I found that out and I wrote that and they totally hated my, they're like, uh, you know, that's the truth. We need to like show that because I used to work at Children's Hospital. I was... um, I applied for a position into palliative care. I almost got it. I, you know, and this was in 2013, 2012, 2013, when they were just getting a palliative care uh, practice going there. Like, and they didn't have that before. I mean, going more into stuff. So, uh, you know, with pain management and stuff. So, I mean, that's late. Oh yeah, but kids. but going back into, I was like, oh, I can't believe that. Just because you didn't like kids, doesn't mean that you know it's just bizarre to me. But that's another. I mean, that's another area of um, just kind of spiritual care and counseling in general, and mm-hmm. then palli- like palliative, and then end of life care for kids is really far behind where it needs to be. Right. Like there are not enough. I mean, there are obviously practitioners, there are obviously scholars and people who are thinking about this, but it is difficult to find the kind of resources much like with fat people. It really, we, you really struggle to find, um, not just research. Cause you can find so much research talking about, you know, how fat people are, you know, are going to die, but then you get to the, so what, 
like, okay, and what do we, what do we do about fat death? How do we accommodate it? And the same thing with children, there's very few resources and not a lot of experts when you think of like hospice chaplains um, right? and just kind of pediatric chaplains in general, there's just, there's limited research and, and um, limited kind of uh, practical materials to help people be like, how do you talk to a kid about a terminal disease or that they're going to die? Or even if we're not talking about kids who are going to die, how do we talk about death to kids in general? Right. And there just isn't a lot of, um, a lot of really good practical advice out there. So yeah, that's, um, but that is, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just saying, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting when you see, when you talk about like Saunders, it's interesting to see how, um, how so many of these practices and even like each kind of innovation in the field is, um, it like excludes so many other people. It's like these kind of this like step forward, but at the expense of like hospices, like hospices, I I tend to, as a death worker, I think a lot of death workers who are doulas are kind of wary of this, the system per se, or the institution, because you can kind of see that it, it isn't, it's just not designed to meet each individual patient in this really holistic way, right? Like maybe they're just trying to make patients comfortable, but you have to like, you're lucky if you get a really good hospice nurse who can do the more emotional and spiritual care elements right. who can really like, but you're not guaranteed that as part of just being in hospice, you're guaranteed, you know, a kind of some, some, um, I, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Cause I think about this as I look at death fat and I, like you said, and even in your research, like there's just no buddy talking about it. No. And there's nobody researching it. And then we have all these anecdotes to like, go back to Chris Farley's funeral, um, where people can come up with all of these stories of where they've kind of seen fat death stigmatized or made fun of, or people struggle to accommodate the body. And I think and I, I, that's part of my research is looking at this kind of spectacle of fat death. And so here I'm thinking practically like, okay, Chris, I, I love that Chris Farley's friends were there and like, we're like, we're going to, we're going to support this, this, our loved one, this man, right? regardless of his size. But then I also think wouldn't it honor Chris Farley to, to either add more pallbearers or to put right. the casket on wheels or to to say, hey, the last thing we want to commemorate this man is to make fun of his size. And I know that that's what, that isn't what they were doing directly. Right. But if people were in the kind of, the, you know, the, the audience seeing these men struggle to carry him, then all they're thinking about is how fat Chris Farley is and how big and how burdensome. Right. And even if they're like sensitive enough to recognize, well, what a beautiful kind of dedication or devotion, like you mentioned of their friends to, to do this hard task. My, my thought as a death worker would be like, well, why did it need to be hard? And how do I help to make it less hard for people? Right. It's almost like a metaphor of what his life was like, instead of going out much more, um, calmly, you know, in much more in a positive way, like because the pallbearers were struggling, like he was having a struggle with uh drugs you know and substances and stuff so it's kind of like an allegory 
to what his life was. And it, it kind of doesn't have to be that way. I mean, that's a poetic way of looking at it, but it would have been nice, like, okay, you know, this is a much more positive way. It's interesting that you say that. Um, but you also were posting about that one woman. Blanche. Blanche. Yes. Let's yes. talk about her story. I think it's so interesting because that was very turn of the century, like in the mid 1800s. Right. Um, so yes, she, Blanche Moses was one of my, um, my like favorite kind of people. She is, she died in, um, I think it was 1863 and she was, um, let me just pull up my little notes about her, but, um, she died in 1863. She was only 17 or not even 17 years old. She died three days before her 17th birthday. So she was just barely on the cusp of 17. Um, and she died, um, in Baltimore, Maryland, um, after, uh, they say, you know, this is again, the only kind of scholarly kind of primary source material we have about this is like these newspaper articles from the 1800s, which, you know, we don't have like a coroner's report. We don't have anything that really gives us, but they said that she died of a fatty heart, um, which, you know, perhaps that's, perhaps that's true. Um, either way, they just made this huge spectacle of this young woman's death. And, um, she was, um, she was working. She'd just gotten married. It's just the whole thing felt so tragic. She'd just gotten married. And, um, one of the articles reads that she was spending her honeymoon, at the Dime Museum um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Other articles read that she was kind of working there and boarding there because she was one of their exhibits, right? Yes, she was, because she was 517 pounds, according to the articles, um, and and pretty short. So I think that she was um, a, you know, striking kind of individual and very fat. And so people, yeah, they put her in a, in a kind of museum wow. as a freak show, as a sideshow. And, um, when I was doing this research, cause I have a, a paper that will be presented at the American Academy of Religion on this, on death fat, um, Very funerals and securities yeah. in November. So I've been doing a lot of research to kind of, you know, um, build this up and say like, Hey, here's my, here's my evidence of, right. um, this kind of spectacle. The thing that I, I know as a fat person that I live all the time. And that if you ask any fat people, they live it all the time. But like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't qualify as, as evidence enough. Um, but she's, yeah, she's just like, I, I felt this huge affinity for her. And I felt, I just thought of myself at 17. And I thought about how, what a terrible age it is to be in your late teens. It's so oh my God, horrible. Yeah. And I know that the 1800s, you know, things were moving a little faster, but I, um, I didn't, I didn't think for a second that this, this girl got any justice and I'm sure she had a really difficult life and I'm sure to make money to support herself and to support her family. She's at a, she's, she's in a freak show and my heart just broke for her. Absolutely broke for her. Um, and so I did more research and read more articles and all the kind of articles just really focus on how, um, how difficult it was to get her body to, to take her body and to bury her body. Um, cause she was at this boarding house and they had to have, I think they say anywhere from 11 to 12 men had to come up to like carry her body down that they had to get a wagon because there was no hearse in the city large enough to, um, carry the casket, that the casket had to be custom made and that it, you know, weighed 
600 pounds, like on its own. And then you put her in it. So it was like over a thousand pounds. Um, and so she's buried in uh, Mount Olivet Cemetery in um, Baltimore, Maryland. And I was actually headed um, south from Boston. And I was like, I'm going to go to Maryland because I want to see Blanche's grave. I want, yeah. to, I want to commemorate her. Um, and I assumed just because she had a notable death that there would have been a headstone. Um, and there wasn't. She's buried. <gasps> wow. In, yeah, she's buried and unmarked. I mean, this is all, again, I'm using records from the 1800 like you know but I I scoured and I went to the plot um which is 057 um and it's literally just was so tragic it's like up in this corner it's like by a hole in this chain link fence where like people you can tell people sneak in and like drink you know drink and smoke and there's like trash everywhere and um yeah and then there's her her unmarked grave um, and so I sat with her for a bit and I, you know, I told her that I was really sorry and that I, I missed her and I loved her and I, I wish she could have had more and that I hoped she was, um, that everything was better on the other side. Um, but yeah, so she was one of my favorite kind of stories and has, has been, um, I like, I definitely carry her with me and when I do this work that like, my hope is that through my theological work and my practical work that I can make even one person's, one fat person's death better, a better experience. And that I can ultimately, you know, as a kind of, a, a, you know, a larger goal over a lifetime of work, I'm sure make some kind of substantive change to the death process for fat people that makes it a, a slightly more, makes this terrible thing, a slightly better experience for them. But yeah, but right. I'm just Blanche is my, my heart and soul. I love her. Yeah. I love that story. You know, it's so fascinating and interesting, you know, um, and, and unfortunately, but, but also there was like a thousand people at her funeral. Right. And the way that they had to carry her body was on a truck, not the traditional hearse. Yes. It was a wagon. They said it was a wagon. Um, and that they had, yeah, because it wouldn't fit the casket and her body would not fit in a hearse. There was not one big enough at the time to, transport her. Yeah. So a thousand people didn't go to her funeral. Um, a thousand people waited outside of the building to watch her be carried down. Wow. So it was all about spectacle. It was not about paying their respects. It was not about celebrating her. It was like, oh, wow. Look at this like super fat girl. Look at how, how crazy and how difficult it is to transport her. And they watched. And actually that night they had to station guards because people were trying to steal her body people were trying to to kind of yeah desiccate her grave to look at her body like she was it yeah she was a freak show in life and a freak show in death death. yeah again like the Chris Farley which is very fascinating that way you know and it's so important like going back to the um legacy stories yeah like okay well this was your life now, what would you like the story at the end of your life to be, you know, because it's like that, that narrative still continues. You see, it's, I, I find it very fascinating uh, through a storyteller's perspective. You know? Yeah. And, and my goal with talking about Blanche and again, I'm one person, so I can't, you know, you can't, I can't do this for every fat person ever, but 
my goal about talking about her is because I haven't found any, and I have access to, you know, Harvard is one of the largest academic libraries in the world. And mm-hmm. I've scoured for more information on her. Um, and I'm like, okay, well then hopefully what I can do, you know, 150 years later is have, when you look up Blanche Moses to have something about her that is positive and right. that, that honors her. And that isn't just a newspaper clipping talking about this like absurd task of the undertaker to try to, to try to prepare this body for, for burial. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's, that's my hope. And that's my kind of more theological work. And practically I, I do, I want to, I want to provide services, you know, doula services to fat people and say, Hey, you know, working with me, I'm going to be sensitive to your, um, sensitive to your, your condition, to your experiences, to your story, um, yeah. concerns and yeah, to your story, to your fears, to all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to work with you to try to make this the most dignified experience possible. You're up against a system though, which a medical system, which, uh, which does not understand obesity. And I, and I use the word obesity only in, in medical or clinical t- context, because I don't think it's a good word to talk about fat people. Cause it, it's, cause it's a medical word. It's a clinical word. Right. And that isn't like to, to kind of assign people a kind of a medical identity. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't sit well with me or a lot of other fat people. Um, but obesity is not well understood. Um, and even with the kind of rates of how obesity has increased, which there has been like concerns about obesity increasing from, you know, there's, there's concerns about that from the 1800s. There's research from the 1950s talking about that, you know, knowing that there's like 95 to 98% of people who try to lose weight, fail and gain it back. There's, there's stuff in the 1960s, 1970s, the obesity epidemic wasn't really even created until the late 1990s. Right. Um, so these are all kind of, um, so science doesn't understand fat all that well. And if it did, we wouldn't have fat people. If there was a good empirical, like, you know, successful means of actually eliminating fat, someone would have employed it, but we have these like multi-billion dollar industries that don't work for people. And I think the exempic craze and things like that. Oh yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's crazy. And, and again, not a long-term solution for a lot of people, the moment they stop taking it, they gain the weight back. And so again, you just have increased and, you know, I would argue to say that they've now impacted their metabolism. So a lot of these thin people who take ozempic to be thinner have now done substantial damage to their metabolism by limiting, restricting their calories so much that I would argue when they go off of it, not only will they gain the weight back, they'll probably gain more. Right. Um, true. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, you know, the science is not great. And even this kind of number that we look at, there's like a 300 to 400,000 uh, number of like obesity deaths per year that by the, the CDC, that was, re- that was retracted. They had to take that back because that was bad research. And there's actually much lower numbers of people who are, um, considered obese that are like dying from obesity. So I think the science is, is not great. Um, but yet, even with all of that, um, and let's just say that even if the science is a hot mess, um, we do have increasing rates of obesity, which are mostly not in thin people becoming, becoming overweight, but in overweight people becoming more overweight, um, is where the real increase is. 
yet nobody seems to be able to like adjust to accommodate fat people. It's true. It's yeah. true. like that. Like I said, the research was, uh, it was really hard to do research. It was almost nothing. There were a couple of articles and some of them even like led nowhere. You yeah. know, I, I mean, what I had gotten was an article from 2013 about a casket maker in Indiana who specialized in these extra wide caskets that were like 52 inches wide, Yeah, uh, which is like the size of a double bed. And it was a news article that had been done. And he says that he's one of the only casket makers in all of the United States that makes these extra wide and specializes in them. I mean, and then uh, the other thing that I got was that famous mortician. I forget her name. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, she did a little bit of a, a YouTube video on it um, and going over the prices, which was interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, and how if uh, a fat person were to be embalmed, then they have to use more embalming fluid, of course. So yes. that's interesting. Do you want to talk about just what is the process of uh, death in a fat person, like going over like caskets. I mean, these are things yeah. that people don't think of, you know, I definitely don't have a death plan and I'm yes. just like, uh Oh, I should get a death plan because um, I, this is kind of what scared me into getting a death plan. I went, cause burial is very expensive. You don't think very about expensive. it. It is, it is a business. It is very expensive. I mean, I went to the last funeral I went to was about a year ago. It was my mother's cousin she was in her early 60s and she had a diet of breast cancer. She had been battling this breast cancer. Her funeral was very interesting. It was a bit sad because uh, there were people there, you know, but then the stories that were shared about her, like they just kind of didn't know what to say and who she was as a person. Because when you talk to people one-on-one, -on -one, like I was just at a baby shower and they had different stories to say about her. But when they were there. I was like, um, like I knew her, but I didn't, I wasn't very close to her to know a lot about her. She was a, a little bit of a quirky person, you know? Um, but I found it so interesting. Like when they buried her, they buried her, I guess she had these collections of dolls, like vintage mm -hmm. dolls that she had had as a child. So they put like her favorites in the casket, which I was a little bit interesting. I was like, okay. But then when we went to go bury her at her plot, um, these were some of the conversations. I felt like it was in a Seinfeld episode, you know, I was like, this is typical Italian, but maybe this is how she wanted it to be. Like her cousin, um, put the burial together. This, uh, my, my mom, the, the cousin that had passed away, her father had bought these plots years ago for like $65. Yeah. It's a good deal. It's a good like, deal. Right? Not like in the nineties, because he was a vet. So he was a retired uh, vet from the army. So he got this special deal and he got the whole family to buy these plots for $65, right? So they were yeah, all you very could, like, you could not do now. You just oh, no, way. no way. Yeah. They were like saying that plot was like $20,000. It was at Forest Lawn. It was in a nice area, you know, and she had like prime real estate, you know, I mean, she always lived in very nice homes anyway. Like um, she was married to a physician once and she had oh, this that's beautiful funny. home. Yeah. Over her the final mountain. resting place. So her final resting expensive place. pots. Yeah. Yes. At, at, at a fraction of the cost. You know? 
I mean, rich people always get the best deals. So yeah, it makes, yeah, it makes sense. So you know, plots are unbelievably expensive. People, yeah. people don't, and this is not just about fat people, but in general, people do not have their, their stuff together when it comes to end of life. Very wow. few people have their wills. And if they have a will, it's like mostly focused on their, you know, their um, possessions or their estate. A lot of people don't have advanced directives. A lot of people don't have, um, you know, their funeral planning. And, and I think what people don't realize is that you, you can have a say in all of it. Like you right. can, you can be really involved and be like, you know what? I want a huge party and I want there to be bagpipes and I want, yeah. and you know, that, that, you know, that, I don't know if I can swear, but that yeah, like, of course, yes, yes. Like bitch, I knew from high school, like cannot come. I want her yeah. to bounce the moment she walked <laughs> in. Like you can absolutely, you can be really specific. And I've even, you know, been filling out my own paperwork. And um, I'm only 29, so I, you know, I hope that I don't die anytime soon. But you know, in this work, I'm like, I need to understand what this process feels like. And it yeah. is really, it's it's on one hand. Um, you know, really sobering and, and, and somber to kind of think about your own death. And on the other hand, it's like, wow, I can be really specific. I can make sure that I'm advocating for what I want. And ultimately this is a way that I show how much I love my loved ones, because if I were to die, they have a plan. They don't right. have to think about what I wanted they don't have to think. And like, fortunately I'm in grad school. I don't have any money. So nobody has to worry about that. Like nobody has to worry about that. You're like, but, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until well, you get your Netflix show. Oh up. my God. Fingers well, crossed. That, right. <laughs> yeah. But I, yeah. Right. So I'm like, right now I'm not worried about an estate, but, um, but I am like, you know, if something were to happen to me, you know, God forbid tomorrow, I'm like, what would I want? I'd want a huge party. I would want yeah. to be, I, I would prefer, I mean, I have a couple ideas of how I would like to be my disposition, but I do not want to be in a casket. I do not want these things. Um, as a fat person, as I'm going through this paperwork, I also have to think really critically about, so like in a normal setting, I would not want any, like, I would not want extraordinary measures. Like if I right. was in a coma or there was like, kind of any, any idea of like medical futility. And they were like, this, this person is not going to recover in a meaningful way under normal circumstances. If I was thin and I could trust that the doctors didn't have some kind of bias against me. Right. If I was like a thin white woman and I knew that on average doctors like saw themselves represented in me and were going to do, do their best to keep, to give me the, the highest quality of care then I would probably say, no, I don't want, I don't want any um, kind of extreme measures. But as a fat person, knowing all of this data about discrimination, I mean, there's tons of studies that talk about just kind of the level of disgust um, physicians and nurses and medical students have with fat bodies, fat cadavers um, that like, which also leads to a lot of fat people not getting care, um, right. which leads to higher rates of mortality because they are not getting diagnosed for things because they're not seeing the doctor as regularly. Cause there are doctors who, who won't perform or who, who don't perform as well on like regular examinations um, and who don't trust or really want to work with fat patients. Um, I think there's one study that shows over 50% of, of doctors in a self-reported study admitted that they found their fat patients non-compliant and wow. disgusting. Um, so that's 50% self-reporting, which means that there are plenty of more who 
who don't realize that they have a bias, but definitely are operating with a bias. And this is, this is true of, you know, patients of color, of trans patients, of disabled patients, right? There's so many different intersections where people, um, where the medical industry, and as you know, as a nurse, I'm sure you see stuff where, where there is, you know, I'm sure a lot of people want to provide the highest quality of care, but they bring their biases to their practice, whether or not they, they mean to. Um, well, I, I'm just going to share a quick story. I mean, what, one day in, in clinic, I had a 16-year-old who came in and um, she was fat. She was obese. You know, I forget. She was well over 200 pounds uh, and she was maybe, I forget how tall she was, but but she came in complaining of her knees, you know, and her knees were popping. She was having a lot of pain. She was having difficulty walking. So when she came in, I had said, well, it is your weight because you're putting a lot of stress on your knees. And her mother started screaming at me and she goes, you're uh, discriminating against her. You're, you know, da, 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 and it's not just that. Da, da. I go, well, I'm sorry. You know, I don't mean to discriminate because I always try to get to eye level with my patients, you know, mm-hmm. um, so I'm not tearing. I go, she, the mom just went off and the mom was also fat. So, um, but I was just like, well, I, I mean, you know, and I go, well, let's just talk about what's been going on. You know, I, I'm just saying, you know, that is one factor. It is, yeah. you know, a, a lot of weight on your knees, you know, Um which is very different. So sometimes, you know, we'll get the patients coming in already because so many people have discriminated against them and they always, they already have that vision, you know, or that mindset of, oh, here's another person who's going to do the same thing to me. And that could be true or not true, but as the data shows, you know, 50%, unless a person really does have a connection with their patient to know who they are as a person, instead of just this fat body, you know what yeah. I mean? Then it's, it's different. You know, you keep it, you, you have more of a, and we don't get that in, in healthcare anymore. You know, yeah. um, you only see the provider for 10 minutes and then you're gone. You know, you're not building that, uh, connection to really, um, understand that person and what they're going through. I mean, I feel that that movie that had come out, um, what was it called? Uh, the one about the whale, mm-hmm. you know, I, I really enjoyed that movie from the perspective of how the nurse was in there really trying to help this guy, even though he didn't want to go in to um, see uh, a healthcare provider, you know, and he was really struggling with his health. And it turns out, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie that this nurse was actually uh, connected to, um, the whale guy because her, her brother was his, uh, partner. Okay. Oh, have you seen the movie? I haven't seen it. Oh, it's it's Um, really, really interesting. Um, Yeah. I haven't seen it in part because I'm, I just, I get like a pretty visceral reaction to like fat suits and, Mm -hmm. and, um, I think, stories about fat people are just hard to tell. Well, I haven't seen it. Um, and I've, I've heard kind of mixed reviews about it in terms of what people thought was good or not good, but I haven't, yeah, I haven't seen it. So I can't, I can't speak to it, but, um, but, but with like, with, you know, very fat people, um, and there's a lot of data that shows that for people who are overweight, there aren't necessarily, um, significant 
or like poor health outcomes, when you do get to people who are very fat or on the kind of anywhere from over a BMI of which the BMI is a disaster. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, it comes from, no one knows the background of it. It comes from the military. I mean, it's like, why are we using that? It's so antiquated. It's terrible. It's bad. Yeah. The BMI is, the BMI is actually like terrible. Um, and it has a, it has, um, it was actually from a, um, an academic who was just looking to kind of normalize for, for math. It was never, uh, originally meant to be a health metric. He was trying to like normalize math. And then it was honestly, it was just like assumed by other organizations and other people. And then right. it became standard for military. Yeah. yeah. Which actually right now there's a, you might've seen there's there, there's basically this kind of concession or, or not concession, but, um, uh, confession that it's, racist people recognizing that it was yeah because it was using uh, using a like essentially like small white men as the barometer for normal right. and so anyone who wasn't a small white man like even if you had perfectly healthy perfectly healthy thin people if they were just naturally much taller naturally more muscular like all of a sudden they became overweight or obese yeah, you're obese yes and i've been I called think- obese i it's like how much do i weigh now I won't say my weight, but I've been called obese. Like, oh, you're obese. You go to the doctor. Oh, you're obese. Yes. And, and yeah. that's it. If you're um, above like 165, you're yeah. obese, you know? Yeah. And it, I mean, they changed it in, you know, in 1985, they had, they kind of revised um, the National Institute of Health, revised their um, the definition to be tied to the patient's BMI. So that's basically all they use as a metric of, of what, what your weight was and whether it was normal or not. Um and then, you know, in 1998, then it was kind of restructured once again. And all of a sudden people became fat or became overweight, like overnight because they moved the, they moved the guidepost down. Right. Um, and so, yeah. And that's kind of what I meant when I talked about like how the science is kind of all over the place in yeah. the sense that people don't really understand what, um, what, how obesity does. Um, cause obesity itself is not a cause of death. Like it's, you know, it may be, it may kind of have comorbidities. It may maybe responsible for some of those comorbidities, but a lot of those things like cancers, heart, like these things are often kind of part of a constellation of genetics, of environment, of behaviors. Like, so, you know, um, obesity is an interesting one because this idea of the epidemic, you know, there's this debate over whether or not obesity is a disease and what calling obesity a disease, what it, what it means for people. But, um, the beauty of my work is that by the time I'm involved, people are already dead. So <laughs> I don't really have and to And a lot of times when people are dying, like say of cancer or some other illness, they're losing a lot of weight yes, because they're, they're no they're- longer able to eat. You know, either they're being tube fed or they're being fed through uh, IV or whatever, yeah. you know, and they lose a lot of weight. You know, they get yeah. usually sick people look very in- emaciated, you know? Yeah. And so for, for people who, you know, were fat their whole life and then are diagnosed with a terminal disease, something like cancer, you know, Mm -hmm. something like that. And they do lose weight as they are dying. That obviously changes what your, your needs might be. My, my work as like a doula and my theological work would be like, Hey, if this person's fat their whole life, then they're definitely bringing to their death an immense amount of shame. And I think about that, um, and the, you know, if I were to be diagnosed with heart failure, I, as much as I know, I would probably feel like, okay, well, this was my fault, right? This was my fault. 
that I, I didn't treat my body right, or I didn't do these things. And I know so much. I've, I've read the research. I'm a death worker. Like I of all people can recognize, you know, that nobody's responsible for it. And even if they are, so what, like my work is to help them have the, the best death possible right. and to help them kind of resolve and reconcile anything that's left to the, to the best of everyone's ability before, yeah, yeah. They, before they pass on. Um, so I'm not really interested in like, I'm interested in healthcare and fatness in general, but it's kind of in the background for me, right? Because I'm mostly fascinated and mostly dedicated to, okay, you're a fat person who either has, you know, six months, a year to six months, right. you know, as you know, cause that's kind of what you need for the hospice or the terminal diagnosis is right. that six months. Um, or, or even if you're a fat person who dies suddenly, um, how do we, how do we prepare for that? And how do we make it better for you? And if I have time to do spiritual work, I mean, that's what I hope, but you can't, obviously you can't always guarantee that you have time with every fat patient or every, every person that you have time to do that works. And then you have to kind of then shift to the more practical elements. So, um, so yeah, and you asked earlier and I didn't quite get into it, but like some of the concerns that come up when we think about traditional burial and cremation, um, which a lot of people think is like the only options. For anyone, regardless of weight at the end of life, they think those are your two options. You get buried or you get cremated. Um, And that's just not true. Um, But yes, for like fat people, it is, yeah, transportation is a huge issue. You have to think about how to transport it. But fortunately, like we can, we have the physics and the capability to move very heavy objects. Like there are solutions for that. Um, You might need a custom casket. You may need two plots. If um, you want to be buried in a cemetery, which as you know, plots are incredibly expensive. Really expensive. Yeah. Yes. Like I said, 20 grand. Uh, yes. I, I just was amazed. I was like, I'd rather take that 20,000 and go on vacation. Yes. So I think a lot of people don't realize like their hands are kind of tied. They, right. they think that these are the only options they have. And so certainly for fat people, what is an already incredibly expensive process becomes, and I think you mentioned Caitlin's video, um, she cites a, a source that um, says it would be anywhere from $800 to $3,000. I think it's bar. more. It, it sounds is- like it's more because you quoted uh, in on your Instagram where a family went to a mortician and they automatically were like, it's 20000 just yes. to get the, the body ready for burial. Yeah. So that man was, I believe close to 700 pounds. So that man is kind of on the, um, the, the much higher end of Mm -hmm. what, um, many people, because the the people who are, who are like very, very fat constitute a very small portion of the population. So it is mostly people who are kind of more in that overweight to like obese, like, you know, but a a lower BMI, I hate that these are like the words I have to use to talk about it, but that's how people will understand it. Mm Um, and so you know, that's not a normal example, but for the like, you know, fattest among us, yeah, you could potentially be looking at $20,000 more if you need a custom casket, two plots, um, perhaps a different way to transport the casket, additional, um, you might need additional staff to actually take care and like wash the body, additional bombing fluid. Um, I mean, fat bodies decompose differently, like very fat bodies decompose differently than thinner bodies. Um, How so? Do you know about the decomposing process? That's very, I, I find that interesting. I yeah. Know. So I'm not, I'm not a, um, a funeral director and I'm not a mortician. So I don't actually work with the, the, um, 
I've never, I don't work in the back of a funeral home. I don't uh-huh. work in a, in a morgue. Uh, so I don't have great examples beyond what I've heard through talking mm-hmm. with morticians um, and talking with funeral um, directors and undertakers, which is essentially just that the kind of fat decomposes faster oh, interesting. than muscle. Um, and so it, um, it changes the kind of speed at which you need to work. Um, when you think about cremation, fat burns faster Mm -hmm. than muscle and bone. Um, so it kind of stokes fire. So if you look at like fat people and cremation, you'll see like articles about crematories, like burning down because they were, it got too hot. So Uh there are like legitimate considerations. Um, I think the frustration comes for a lot of people, myself included, is that like these like quote unquote, um, this obesity epidemic and the rates of increase have been going on for 30, 40, 50, 60, hundred years and the funeral industry is slow to adapt, just like a lot of industries are slow to adapt. Right. Um, and at some point you say, Hey, if everyone's fat, apparently does this not become the normative size? And if this is the normative size, why are you not equipped to, why are you not equipped to like do your job? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I found that very interesting because I was like, okay, if we have such an obesity epidemic going on, why aren't there more places accommodating it? You know, why aren't there more places making larger caskets? Why aren't there more articles written about it? I mean, why is there that one guy in Indiana? Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a catch, right? Like, and I think that's what a lot of fat people, particularly fat scholars, and there's a lot of really great people who are doing this work, who Mm -hmm. are who specialize on healthcare and fatness and can speak to it much more eloquently than I, I can. I think you're doing an amazing job. This is such an interesting um, episode. I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to do justice by all the fat people, but, um, but yeah, so it's, uh, you know, right. So it's one of these things where you're like, if everybody's fat, why can you not accommodate them? Right. And then the question is, well, like, is everybody fat, which is its own kind of research and, and that people are doing that. Kind and of I, subjective in a way. Yeah. And know. it's, all, and then it's the other question is like, okay, well, if everybody's fat and you won't accommodate them. Like why, what mm. is the reasoning behind doing that? And I think when stigma comes from fat people as they approach their own death is like, they do know whether they know empirically because they've looked at the, the data or whether they just know kind of in their bones that their body's not going to be treated poorly. The body is going to be treated poorly, that they don't have the same options, that it may come as a huge expense to their loved one not have planned for, because I don't think a lot of pe- people know. And I, and I talking to funeral directors um, and morticians, sometimes people don't realize there's going to be associated, higher associated costs with a fat person. And they're not prepared to pay those costs. Right. They're huge. The, the costs, like I was looking up are ginormous. I mean, that just that $20,000, that's just for embalming. That's just to get the body ready. That's not the plot. That's not the, I mean, it may have included the transportation. I don't know, but all of that other stuff that, that comes with it. I mean, we were just talking about plots are like 20,000. That's a $40,000 plot. I mean, we're talking well over a hundred thousand dollars towards the end of it. I mean, that's like a college degree or or a down payment on a home. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's it is wild and people don't realize that. So that's kind of one of my focuses as a doula um, is to say, hey, nobody's doing this. I mean, yeah. there are ton, there are a lot of doulas and um, there are a lot of doulas with 
a, a whole range of specialties, but nobody specializes in fat people. And I'm kind of like, well, you keep telling me that we're all going to die um, right. and keep saying that everyone's fat. So I'm like, if all these fat people are dropping like flies left and right, who is there to, to like catch them? Who is there right. to say, okay. Like, and so I was like, this is something I can do because I am a fat person. And I understand these concerns. And I think it's very different than going to a doula who is perhaps thin and well-meaning, but you're right. like, oh, you just, you're never going to understand my experience, my lived experience. And you're never going to understand what that, what I'm, what I'm bringing to the grave with me. Um, and I think that that's one of the things I would like to see change in, um, in the kind of doula and death worker space. Um, and part of that, and part of that's actually happening at a good time because mm. there are simultaneously a lot of innovations happening in the kind of disposition world um, in terms of aquamation, in terms of um, human composting. Of yeah, let's burial. talk a, a little bit about those uh, very interesting areas of aquamate. Like what is aquamation? So aquamation is, um, it's a, essentially it's, it's similar to, cre to cremation, but they, um, there's a handful of chambers. It's not a very, it's not a very common or accessible. I don't want to say popular because I think it, it might be popular were it more accessible, but it's a slightly greener option for people who are, um, looking for an alternative to cremation. Um, so it uses kind of water, it uses like a water and a kind of pressure and a chemical mix to break down the body as, um, to essentially to like sediment, like, um, like ash. Uh, so it's a similar idea, but you're put into this big kind of like, um, chamber. It almost looks like, um, you know, if you've seen this, like with like polio, you see the, the kind of the lungs, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's like this big chamber, um, and so that's an option. It, it's more environmentally friendly though. It uses quite a bit of water, but it's more environmentally friendly than traditional cremation. Um, and it essentially like turns the body with this like mix and can kind of break down the, the flesh and the bone and the muscle to create, um, like a, the same, almost the exact same material you'd have from a cremation, but it's more like a sediment and less of an ash. Um, but it can be, you know, then you can store it in an urn, you can bury it. Um, I mean, you're still subject to the same kind of rules as far as like scattering, you know, human remains. Um, but that's an option and it's, it's a very new option and there's not a ton of places to get it done, but they can, uh, they can accommodate larger bodies. So like up to 500 pounds, there are some, there are some like limitations as to like the dimensions of a body, right? Like you're very tall or like very short. And so they're very wide or something like that. It may not fit. Um, but that's an option. And I think that it will gain more popularity over time, not just with fat people, but also with thin people, but, um, states are like slow to adopt changes to these industries. Um, but there is innovation. And so, so aquamation is one of those, those options for people who are, um, interested in a slightly more environmentally friendly option, or maybe are worried about, um, cremation because of their weight, because there would be no fire though. I mean, there are crematories who can handle very large bodies, but, um, again, you kind of, you run some risks about the way that fat kind of burns. So that's an option. Um, human composting and natural burial are, um, also very cool. Natural burial is one of the, the disposition methods that I'm considering. Um, I would also love like a Viking burial, but that's like kind of harder it's a Viking burial, like where you're sent out to sea and sometimes you're on fire. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I love it, which, which is, which is 
possible. There are small groups that do at sea burials. There are, um, so there are like, and that's why I encourage people to do death planning. Yeah. Because they can say like, you know what? Maybe I want to be shot into space. You can do that. They can shoot your ashes into space. Wow. People maybe say that like, I want to be, I want like a funeral pyre. There is a funeral pyre in the U.S. I mean, you have to be a resident of Crestone, but there are other options. Like there, people can be really creative about how they want their disposition to be. And then, and then a doula or our funeral director, but doulas are just a little bit, um, there's a lot more flexibility in what they're capable of. And they, they usually charge much lower rates than a funeral director. You may have to still work with a funeral director. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you do a home funeral that varies state by state. Uh, but, um, yeah, you can really be quite imaginative with what you want and, wow. um, barring anything truly unhinged. I think it's, it's like possible. Um, but yes, uh, human composting, there's a handful of orgs that do it. Like a couple that are really popular return home and then recompose both in Washington, um, that are, uh, they basically just put you into like a compost bin, like a beautiful stainless steel kind of compost bin and with like flowers and dirt and mulch and everything. And like your body, I think there's some proprietary stuff in there that I'm not aware of, but like it, um, your body just decomposes naturally. And then you can take the dirt and you can use it to, there's a place in Colorado where you can use your own, you can use it to like plant flowers in this beautiful flower Ooh, farm. Interesting. You can obviously put it in your own home or in your own yard, plant a tree, all that kind of stuff. So that's a great option. And they can usually also accommodate up to about 500, 550 pounds, which, which uh, accounts for majority of um, the fat people in the U.S., um, if you're bigger than that, right. If you're bigger than that and you are not able to do aquamation, traditional cremation, you, you don't either don't want or can't afford traditional, um, burial, then a great option, which is can accommodate essentially any size is natural burial. Um, and natural burial is, uh, there's a handful of places all over the U S that are kind of either conservations or traditional cemeteries that have natural burial options. Um, or it's sometimes private land that people use for this kind of burial purpose, um, where the natural burial. Yeah, go ahead. And so natural burial is that. basically a hole in the ground. You dig a hole, you put, you can wrap the body in, um, the corpse in a, in like a shroud, a burial shroud, usually something that biodegrades and you put them in the hole in the ground and you cover them up. Um, and you can have, sometimes you can have a headstone. Sometimes you can not have a headstone. It kind of depends on, on you, but it is an option that alleviates any need for embalming. You don't have to be embalmed, which people don't realize like you don't have to be embalmed. Like mm-hmm. that is not something that has to happen. Um, and then you don't have to be embalmed and it doesn't matter how big you are because you just build, just dig a bigger hole. And then right. um, you don't need a casket. So it gives people a ton of flexibility. Uh, right. So it's a much lower cost option. There are still some considerations about transportation, about like, you know, actually moving the body, but essentially all the other considerations about um, casket plot size, that's, they, they don't apply. I think that's so fascinating. I remember I was dating this guy and he had this entrepreneurial idea and he had had it for a long time. 
And he told me he pitched it to his friends and they thought it was a terrible idea. But of course he pitches it to me and I'm like, that sounds like such a great idea. So I, his idea was when someone died and um, had their ashes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he would transport them anywhere in the world that they wanted to be sent to. Right. So I thought that was such a cool idea. Right. And he had kind of he had an international business, a master's in international business. So it wasn't like he just was like, this is he kind of had worked it out a little bit. And I was like, this is really interesting. And at the time, this is just kind of how things work with me. I call myself a muse. At the time, one of my neighbors had worked at Forest Lawn and that's what she did. She was the um, I forget what the title was uh, exactly, but she was the one who dealt with families and, and getting the ashes particularly. So she, she had a lot of um, uh, insight and information. Like I kind of picked her brain a bit about this whole process and it, and it, it sounded very easy, but it's not because yeah. you actually have to get visas for the ashes. That's so interesting. And I, you know, and, and so, um, you have to get visas for the ashes and then, uh, you have to tell people that you're transporting ashes in a plane. Um, and then you can't just dump the ashes anywhere. You know, you can't just go to a park and dump the ashes there. You know, this is what my forest line, um, a neighbor was telling me, you know, and she was just like, yeah, you have to have a special permit for that. And, and so there was all these uh, interesting legalities that went with it, you know? And so I was doing a little bit of research with him, but then he was kind of like a pothead. And I was just like, you know, are you serious? So then my other creative friend takes the idea oh, good. And, starts, and starts making commercials, like just like comedic commercials about it. Like we had gone to Ensenada and he gave it a name. I forget what it was called, but it was a very, uh, I forget the name. I have to look at the little videos that we were making, but they were hilarious. I mean, it's not, he he was kind of parodying it, but you know, <laughs> he loved the idea so much that anywhere we'd gone vacation together, he goes, look, he goes, we're in Ensenada. You could have your ashes just, you know, we could have brought someone's ashes and dumped them and had like a little ceremony for them, you know? I know. I love the idea. That's I Isn't mean, that that's- a great idea? Like no one's doing that, you know? No, so I mean, that's another idea for you, you know? <laughs> There are like really complicated, like, you know, laws and regulations. So like, honestly, I mean, this is, this is not at all advice, but just like, you know, I mean, I guess if no one's looking, but you can get in trouble. Um, But no, I love that. I love the idea of essentially like expensing all these beautiful vacations as a business trip because you're right. And that's what he wanted. Ultimately, it was a way for him to travel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're like, I have to go to this like rogue place. (laughs) I have a client who wants their ashes spread. Yeah. Right. I I mean, you know, I, I really hope that like more stuff happens. I hope that people are given better options, more fun options. I think, you know not at all to be cavalier, which, and I've tried to be more serious today because it's obviously a serious topic, but like, you gotta have some fun with it. Like you right, cannot do right. this work if you're, if you're not, I mean, and it is very serious. It is. I'm very reverent. I care deeply about the people I work with and, and hope to work with. Um, and also like, it has to be fun. It right. has, you have to have a sense of humor about these things 
because otherwise it's just like, it's too heavy. You can't deal. Yeah. It's, it's true. And just like the, the last funeral that I went to that I was talking about my mom's cousin, I mean, it it was kind of quirky because people were, I even saw my mom, like, they were like, would anybody like to, um, put, uh, dirt on um the grave you know that my mom went up and yeah. I almost started crying because <laughs> not too many people went up but here goes yeah. my mom she's like <laughs> no and funerals are hilarious in a lot of ways because there's so much like silence there's so much like like forced emotion everybody knows they're supposed to be so serious but like you're also like this is funny like this there's there's parts about it are funny and when like a, yeah. a good friend of mine passed away and she had a beautiful ceremony and it was, I mean, devastating because she was a very young woman. And, um, and, and I, I gave a eulogy and it was like one of the hardest days of my life. And also this girl was the funniest, one of the funniest people I've ever right. known in my entire life. Like I could not get through that day without thinking I could like hear her as I'm at her funeral, like making fun of us, like for being like, I could hear her teasing right, and like cracking jokes and like seeing all these people who, who like, so you have to kind of, to the best of your ability, honor loved ones with, with humor as well. Um, Cause that's what they would want. And I went to a funeral recently um, which was, which was so great where, um, and this was a woman who died of breast cancer, who had time to kind of think about her last wishes and, um, where it was like, you could not tell the family that you were sorry for their loss. If you did, you had to take a shot. So like, you, I love that. Yes. So you couldn't, you had, you couldn't wear black. If you were black, you take a shot. If you like, if you said that you were sorry, you had to take a shot. Like if you, you know, all this kind of stuff to say like, Hey, this is going to be a party just not at all to, to just diminish how devastating everyone is at this loss. But, Mm -hmm. but, but I think that as we think more about our deaths, as we prepare for them, as we reckon with them, which is what doulas and death workers are kind of ultimately hope people do, we can get better at recognizing it as a rite of passage, as something we're all going to go through and as something certainly sad, but as also a celebration of, of, of life and of what comes next. Um, and that's hard for people to do. I'm not saying that, that people have to get there quickly, but my hope is that, um, I can, I can help people celebrate their life and kind of get ready for what, what is coming next. I love that. So just to wrap up, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, like your Instagram, your other social media handles. Yes. Okay. So my, um, my personal Instagram, where's where I've been like posting a lot of my stuff lately, um, is at Isabella Rose car, um, on Instagram, but, um, just because of how excited people are and I'm kind of ready to take the plunge myself. Um, I'm also on at death fat doula on Instagram.com and we'll have um, a website coming soon. Awesome. Will, yeah. We'll have kind of an outline of my services and, and some of my research all collected so people can can keep track of that who are like less interested in like what I had for lunch. So. Oh my God. Yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on. This has been super fun. I love this whole uh, episode. Super interesting. I can talk, I could talk to you forever. Oh, yeah. well, we should, I mean, yeah. we should talk again, uh, uh, you know, should. on camera, off camera. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Have no, I really, I really thank appreciate so this. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nurses and Hypochondriacs podcast. We'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. 
We'd also love a monetary donation. You can go ahead and donate on Venmo at nurses-hypo. Links are at the show notes. If you'd like to take any of the well-written nurse writing and storytelling classes, those links are also at the end of the show notes. And we'd love it if you come and uh, learn the art of storytelling. Thanks again for listening. Till next time. <laughs>